One focus, one subject. Welcome to The Real Story, the podcast that brings together global experts to explain one issue shaping the news. BBC World Service podcasts are supported by advertising. Welcome to this week's News Hour Extra with me, Anu Anand. Now, I grew up in an Indian family and the topic we're discussing this week uh, cuts pretty close to home. It's about caste and uh, discrimination as well as the protests in India against uh, caste violence. Uh, Now, a lot of Indians who've grown up around the world will be generally aware of what caste they are, but they they may not be aware of all of the implications for those Indians uh, on the lowest rungs of the caste system. Uh, So we got together a panel of, of guests to talk about where the caste system has come from, what exactly it is, and the problems it's causing in modern India. It's a a fascinating and often very combative listen, uh, and I hope you enjoy this episode. This is NewsHour Extra from the BBC World Service with me, Anu Anand. India is known globally for its cultural footprint, from yoga to vegetarianism to its colourful film industry and its vibrant textiles, as well as for its 5,000-year-old history, culture and religion. But much of India's global image comes from the culture of its higher caste Hindus. They are the ones who are often strict vegetarians, and along with the other upper castes, they dominate the country's social religious and business world. Lesser understood are the lives of low-caste Indians. Well, over the next hour, we'll explain the caste system and its origins. We'll also talk about why thousands of people who belong to the lowest rung on the caste ladder, the Dalits, are protesting violence and discrimination against them by marching through the western state of Gujarat. Ultimately, we'll ask, should India's caste system be abolished? And if so, what will it take? My guests today are the BBC's Rahul Tandon in Kolkata. In our Delhi bureau, we're joined by Chandra Ban Prasad, a journalist and political commentator who also advises the Dalit Indian Chamber of Commerce and Industry. We also have Bina Palikal, coordinator for the National Campaign on Dalit Human Rights. And here with me in London is Dr. Prakash Shah of Queen Mary University. He's a reader in culture and law, and he specializes uh, in comparative law with South Asia. Now, we'll be hearing later from the young lawyer who's leading the march for Dalit rights in Gujarat, as well as a blockbuster best-selling Indian author on why he's dropped his surname to promote a caste-free society. But first of all, what is caste? Here's the BBC's Swaminathan Natarajan. The caste system is a form of social segregation, which is part and parcel of Indian life. For centuries, caste dictated almost every aspect of Hindu religious and social life, with each group occupying a specific place in this complex hierarchy. Brahmins are placed at the top. They are supposed to be the priests and teachers. Beneath them is the ruling class, called Kshatriyas. They were the kings and warriors. Then Vaishyas, traders. And the last Varna, or the group, at the bottom are called Sudras, working class. The top three groups, Brahmin, Kshatriya and Vaishyas, account for less than 20% of the Hindu population, 
and enjoy disproportionate amount of wealth and power but there are others placed outside the system among them the dalits they have suffered some of the worst forms of social exclusions and are forced to do jobs which upper caste hindu consider impure like making leather footwear cleaning toilets burying the dead hindu scholars say the classification denotes a division of labor and there is no place for discrimination based on birth but the reality is millions are suffering inescapable caste based discrimination and violence even today That's the BBC Swaminathan Natarajan with a very simple explanation of caste. I want to start with my guests um, and, and just a personal question, really. What caste are you? Rahul, I'm going to start with you. Well, I come from the Kshatriya caste, um, the warrior, the king caste, though I think... Uh, If I'm a warrior, it's no wonder that India has been conquered so many times. Um, and, it, 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 you know, it's something that, that my parents left, like your parents, you know, they, they left India, settled elsewhere. But even growing up in the UK before coming back to work in India for a long period of time, caste, is, caste was something that was, you know, part of my upbringing. In what way, Raul? You know, my parents were educated doctors. They, they would, were people who, you know, didn't, you didn't think would believe in a caste system. But as we were growing up... Um, there would be, on religious occasions, gatherings that took place. And it then began, we began to realize, me and my sister, as we began to get a little bit older, that everybody who was at those gatherings were from the same caste. And I think there was a clear, um, there was a clear uh, something that my parents wanted to happen, which was as we got older, they wanted us to marry people from within that particular group, which we, we didn't do. But I think for them, in, in a strange way, they saw caste as something that would help them protect their own identity when they left India and when they were in the, the UK. It's something I've spoken to them about later on in life, saying, you know, why did you do this? And they said, well, we, we thought it was part of our culture and something we wanted to try and hold on to. Prakash Shah, for you, is caste part of your identity? Um, actually, I don't want to answer your question. <laughs> I would rather uh, take up uh, something that uh, you began uh, the program introducing with. Uh, and what uh, Swaminathanji uh, related as as the you know key aspects of the caste system, I think in both your accounts you have a kind of a very you know great redolence of a uh, kind of received account of what you know what some people in scholarly circles we can refer to it as a classical uh, conception of the caste system. Um, and right now I'm part of a research group uh, which involves uh, not just myself but researchers from Belgium, Czech Republic, and India, and we're uh, on the cusp of producing a new book based on our research. And uh, there we're questioning all of these received understandings of what the caste system is. And our basic hypothesis is that the idea of the caste system itself um, is a legacy of uh, European culture to India, if you like. Uh, so the conceptualization that India has a retrograde and uh, corrupt caste system can be found originally in the Protestant theological reflections, which were simply taken on by Orientalists and Anglicist scholars in the 19th century, and how now have become uh, received truths in the social sciences in, and in conventional conversation like, like we're having today. So journalists will often repeat these mantras as if they have some kind of air of truth. But actually, research shows that there is no consistency in any of these accounts. You know, if you actually apply the, these accounts to Indian culture, you'll continuously come up with anomalies. Okay, and well, one of the well, big let's, failures... Let's talk about the mm-hmm. history in a moment. That's important, clearly. But I just want to point out the reason we're talking about this today is not because of some journalistic conspiracy. It's simply because there is a march happening in India 
by Dalit activists, which we're going to examine a little bit later on. We're trying to explain the concept of caste to our yeah, can, listeners. Can I just make a correction? I'm not uh, alleging any kind of no, no, conspiracy by journalists. No, I'm talking understand. about a received account, which right. has become part of the folk culture. I understand what you're saying. Let, let's get into that a little more, just a little bit later. But let me bring in Chandraban Prasad and Bina Palikal. Um, clearly, by introducing you both as... Uh, involved in Dalit rights. I've probably given away your caste already. But Chandraban Pasad, how much of a, of a part of your identity has caste been? Well, it has been from uh, the very birth. I am born into an untouchable family. And uh, my friends, my neighborhood, my schools, my college, my universities, they saw me as a Dalit. I, I saw myself as a Dalit. And what did that mean when they see you as a Dalit? What, what did that mean? This is such a, such a vicious uh, system. So if you uh, come to a city like Delhi and then somebody asks what your caste is and you say that you are a Dalit, then, then they say, oh my God, I, didn't, I, I can't believe you are a Dalit. Dalits are uh, dark-skinned and they must be uh, very lean and thin, looking hungry and uh, working very hard, sweating all the time. So when you say you are well-dressed and when you say that, yes, I am Dalit, then they say, oh my God, I can't believe. Bina, what about for you? Has, has being a Dalit, has that been a big part of your experience of identity growing up? My experience is slightly different from uh, Chandraban, sir. I grew up in a family that actually took a flight. They didn't want to take on the caste identity and they took on a religious identity rather than a caste identity. And so for, for the longest part of my life, I did not know I was Dalit. And only a few years earlier, maybe about uh, six or seven years before I actually then questioned who I am and, you know, trace my identity and uh, confronted my parents. And then they, they said that they, you know, had taken a flight. And I said, why didn't you tell us? And they said it was just so much more easier uh, living in society, not revealing who we were. And so I grew up without a caste, basically. And then when I did come to know that I was Dalit, then I took on that identity and now I wear it. But I'd like to say that after I came to know of my identity or where I come from, something that really shocked me was a couple of years ago, I was I was at this conference and somebody gets up and just like how Sir says that they have a certain idea of what a Dalit should be like, you know, she shouldn't be speaking English, you know, she should be poor, you know, she they have a certain picture in the mind. And uh, they asked me this question is, how come you speak um, good English when you're from the Dalit community. And I, I thought that was really shocking, you know, coming in this day and age. So still people are sitting with these pictures in their mind that, you know, Dalits are, should look a certain way. So the reality for both of you was stereotyping. But for many Dalits who have not had an education, who've not had the opportunities you've had, there still exists a, a physical segregation uh, in day-to-day life from other castes, especially in villages, doesn't there? I mean, in housing, in education, in jobs. What what does that look like day to day, Bina, when you visit villages where Dalits are living with, you know, with other castes? Yeah, I think that is the shocking thing. But we don't have to go very far, Anu. We can see it right here in the capital city. It's very difficult to even find an apartment to rent. You know, maybe in the villages, there are more clearer demarcations of where Dalits live and where the dominant caste live. But in cities like Delhi, it still happens. Like, for example, I've been refused housing based on my 
identity based on the fact that I'm Dalit. We're following up this case of a young girl who is actually a PhD scholar and who was kicked out of her house and beaten by her owner because she didn't say that she was Dalit when she actually got the apartment. And Chandra so, Prasad, there, there's been violence as well, hasn't there? I mean, you read accounts of lynchings, rape, eviction, as Bina's talking about, and just denial of opportunity. In the so-called classical Hindu literature, Dalits are described as malikcha, a term for dirty people. The same term is also used in describing foreigners. So within this uh, country that looks so inclusive and so coherent, you have so much of fractures that Dalits are foreigners to Hindu caste system. And uh, violence is uh, inbuilt in the very caste system where if you defy two basic principles of caste, that is occupation purity and blood purity. When the British government opened schools in India in 1854 onwards, there were riots in the entire country against Dalits entering school system. And finally, in 1880, separate schools were created for Dalits all over India. I am product of one such separate school. And just to be clear, for, for some of the most disadvantaged Dalits, the jobs they do are still some of the, if you like, dirtiest jobs today, including cleaning sewers, clearing away dead animals. Let's talk about how the caste system developed. Prakash Shah, you were talking about the research that you're doing and, and saying that essentially caste comes from colonial history. Um, I'll let you tell us more about that in just a moment. Chandraban Prasad, according to you, how did the caste system develop? Where does it come from? All menial, unclean jobs were assigned to Dalits only. So all manual works, cleaning, skinning dead cattle, removing them, were uh, assigned to Dalits, but not all Dalits were into these occupations. To me, 90% Dalits were into farm uh, work, where they were not allowed to own land. So over a period of time, it developed in such a manner that Dalits would be settled outside villages all over India, and in particular, the southern part of the village, so that the village doesn't become impure. And Dalits were forced to do all these uh, manual jobs. And there were prohibitions on Dalits eating wheat bread, Dalits eating rice. Dalits could not wear certain kind of clothes. There were prohibitions for Dalits uh, wearing uh, golden jewelry. But you're, you're so, saying, I mean, you, you would agree that the, the, the caste system and the, the hierarchy came from within Hindu law that dates back something like 3,000 years? Yeah, once Indians uh, departed from hunter-gatherer uh, stage of human development, the moment they began settling and starting agriculture, this uh, caste system was written and it was inbuilt in the Hindu system of faith. 
so if you don't have caste today then you have hinduism without uh, any essence okay um prakash you're saying this does not come from hindu law you're saying the caste system was part of colonial history well the the description of indian culture and society along the lines of it's it's having an oppressive caste system is definitely part of colonial history yeah, it's it's not part of indigenous indian history at all and no it's, the, it's not true it's not true the hindu texts talk about caste system uh, the charakya's book arthashastra talks about caste system and you are saying it is it all came with colonialism right and yes yes i am okay chandrabhan prasad yes, let, let's let him finish let's yeah. let prakash uh, finish i mean i i would i would challenge anybody <laughs> to show me a phrase uh, let's say in uh, the, you know the, the favorite text that dalit dalits like to <laughs> to castigate uh, let's say the manusmriti uh, wh- wh- where does it have the phrase the caste system right uh, this is an entirely european uh, construction and it's, con- it's not only is it a european construction what's important to remember is that it's a european theological construction in the sense that it's it's based around certain th- um, theological accounts which were uh, believed to be true um in the sense of having a validity in the christian religion right can i can i put it to you that mm. uh, colonialism definitely has a, a, a legacy of divide and rule it's not talked no, about it's, often enough it's not enough. a question of divide no, and rule well, if you let, that, let me follow through well, my argument what what i wanted to ask you was you've made your point about where you think it comes from and that's perfectly valid but how do you do know you, it's valid you, i haven't you, i haven't made you, really made my you, point you haven't allowed me to do finish you, do you agree that you know the system exists today and does it need to be addressed there is no if if i'm saying that there is a, a system uh, which has been imagined by a particular culture as if it belongs to another culture that imagination doesn't give rise to reality but the discrimination is, doesn't exist is that what is that what you're saying well discrimination might exist in indian culture and society right as it does in all societies but one of the key question is that is the explanatory model we are going to use one of the caste system now your other guess what would you s- call it then what, what what would you say the dalit issue the discrimination the, the well even look at look at a term like the dal, dal, like dalit to to which caste group does the word dalit refer to doesn't refer to any caste group all it all dalit means is that somebody is oppressed now what there is an attempt being made here to use the word dalit and to to retroject it into the past of indian culture and society dalit is a modern term so you which are, simply means oppressed so you're seeking just to understand you're seeking to disassociate the the discrimination that exists in india today from hinduism altogether you feel the two are well, separate it, that's also a question begging exercise what is discrimination where does it take place on what grounds does it take place how is it justified you see according to the account that you're trying to propagate here the caste system is the responsible agent if you like yeah and people who live according to the caste and according system, to you what is it but we don't know we have to do the research you see one of one of your guests is talking about the prevalence of violence now one of my colleagues who is contributing to our joint uh, book project uh said is that if you analyze the uh, the cr- figures which are produced by the national crime agencies in India you find that uh, the scheduled castes and scheduled tribes combined um, suffer less violence than other groups in society okay rahul right? let me now now uh, you see it's all very well to try to project these kind of images of violence and oppression and so on but, but these are indian government i am quite figures. interested yeah i'm i'm to, i'm talking about indian government figures so once you analyze the indian government f- figures you see that uh, schedule costs and schedule tries have less of a propensity 
to be victims of violence. Now, how do you ex- how do you explain that? You see, the, my my all your other guests don't seem to have their fingers on any empirical evidence. They have some interpretations of some texts from the past of Indian society. You know, it's like saying, oh, the Bible represents an accurate description of the state of European culture at a certain point in time. Does it? It doesn't. You know, so that's how ridiculous some of these arguments okay. are. So Rahul, Rahul, unless we are going to be serious let, let about bring, talking about the cost, I think we're you, being you very serious. We're, we're giving an hour to you no, and other guests. Simply having talk, an hour is not enough. About, we, should, we should be rigorous as well. We, we, I think we are. Let me bring in uh, Rahul Tandon. Rahul, um, questions about whether discrimination actually exists. I said earlier that Indian government figures show that the discrimination against lower castes has been on the rise. Um, Prakash Shah saying that the incidence of violence is lower. Well, I think that would go against uh, all of uh, all a lot of evidence that's coming out at the moment. Even the Indian Prime Minister just the other day made an impassioned speech in Hyderabad, where he basically condemned violence against Dalits that was that had actually been taken place. And I, and I think what we're getting here, though, Anu, is a sense of how difficult an issue this one is. I mean, there are people who ha- it's impossible, I think, in India for people to even begin to agree on where the origins of caste came from. So then when you move to the more difficult questions of how do you tackle whatever its impact is on uh, modern-day Indian life, then, then, then that is very difficult. But I think if you, if you look at some empirical evidence here, you know, the last survey that the Indian government did of the population was, one of the, fir- was the first for many years since the British left, where the question of caste was actually put in there. And, and the answers that came back were incredibly confusing as well. I think there were more than 4.6 million castes and subcastes that were identified by Indians when they were given the question, which they didn't have to answer, was what caste they were. So I, I think that shows you how complex it is. But I think an idea that there is not violence that is taking place against those at the bottom of society, I, I would have to disagree with that. That's and I a think misrepresentation that, of what I'm saying, isn't it, Rahulji? Uh, did I say that there's well, no violence? No, I didn't. I said that the, the violence, if you look at the national crime figures, uh, is proportionally less against the scheduled cri- crimes and scheduled tribes. If you can falsify that statement, please do. No, but I think uh, we're, we're, we're still at a situation where if we're honest about the issue of caste, we, we don't even know the numbers of different castes in India at the moment because we don't have any, any accurate figures. I mean, the last accurate, accurate figures were from the British, so I think it's very difficult to do comparisons. There are crime figures what in India, violence levels taking... Rahul, well, there, there mean, are crime figures a, in India. They're readily accessible in the public are, domain. There Please are have crime, a look at them. There are, uh, there are crime figures in every country, but if you're going to tell me that in America the crime figures of, of, of violence against blacks are accurate, we know they're not. There's under-representation, under-reporting the best you can say is that we don't know then, instead of making these big allegations about the prevalence of caste-based violence. Well, if we don't know, why are you saying there's less? I mean, you know, then, I'm, then I'm there's no basis for which to have any One of my colleagues who, are, who, who, who works in social sciences has, according to these figures, been able to show that. That's all I'm saying. Right. Okay, well, we'll now, wait. It would be nice if can come along and falsify that. A speech by the Prime no, Minister okay, is not falsification of those figures. No, okay. but if you say you don't know, then it could be that you're wrong as well. And no, that but I'm giving you the increasing. source of my information. If you have better figures, if you have okay, more information, let's, please let, pr- let, provide let, it. Let's, let's agree that we will compare those figures uh, after the program. We can put them side by side if that's what you like to do. You're listening to NewsHour Extra from the BBC World Service with me, Anu Anand. This week, we're looking at the caste system in India. We've had a robust conversation about the origins of the system and how it today begets 
violence, as well as affirmative action. A reminder of my panel today, the BBC's Rahul Tandon joins us from Kolkata. In our Delhi bureau, we're joined by Chandra Ban Prasad. He's a Dalit journalist and a political commentator. We also have Bina Palikal, who's a Dalit rights activist. And here with me in London is Dr. Prakash Shah. He's a researcher in law at Queen Mary University uh, in the UK. Uh, Let's talk a little bit more about the modern history of caste and of affirmative action. Uh, I mentioned about how in the Constitution uh, caste-based discrimination was outlawed and also the author of the Indian Constitution was Bina himself, a Dalit, and he felt very strongly that discrimination had to be countered with affirmative action programs, with quotas in jobs, government jobs, and in educational institutions. And that was only meant to last for about 10 years, but it's continued, hasn't it? I think you're correct that Dr. Babasaheb Ambedkar, who drafted and crafted the Constitution, said about the system, the affirmative action system, that it should be there only for 10 years. But the fact of the matter is that any human development indicators that if we take, whether it be education, whether it be health, whether it be infant mortality rates, it's about 55% of scheduled caste and scheduled tribe children under the age of three are underweight as compared to 37%. So scheduled caste, just, yeah. to, just to interrupt, scheduled mm. caste, scheduled tribe, these are just words that, that mean both Dalits and, and other, tribals, other yeah. members of the Indian community outside on the lowest rung of the caste system. That is correct, yeah. But the affirmative action for mm-hmm. Dalits mm-hmm. and for others outside of the caste system no doubt helped level the playing field somewhat. But didn't it also open the door to a huge scramble within Indian society for the spoils of these identity-based politics. Because today, anywhere from 50 to 70% of government jobs and seats in higher educational institutions are reserved for people. And this is based not on merit, but it's based on caste identity. Well, uh, let me say a word about reservation. The term reservation came later. The term was protection. The state protects Dalits and tribals so that others cannot discriminate. And if constitution and state did not protect Dalits by fixing quota, they would not allow any Dalit to enter school system, university system, and of course government job, because this would mean that you are defying the occupational purity that is core to Hindu religion, that this mass of people cannot enter into these occupations. You're, you're so saying the that, state has to act. You're, you're saying that without reservation, Dalits would have been entirely excluded from uh, opportunities. Um, Rahul, can I bring you in here? Because as I say, you know, there's no doubt that when the constitution was formed, there was a recognition that something had to be mm. done to level the playing yeah. field. But but it has led to a Pandora's box of conflict, hasn't it? It has indeed. And I, and I think if you go back to that sort of seminal moment in the 1990s, which was when VP Singh, the Indian prime minister, took on board this Mandal Commission, which, which extended reservation and took it to a much greater level, the level that you're really talking about 
now where you talk about 50 to 70 percent. And I think that there is an argument that is being put forward by some in India um, and some even from within, I think, the, the low caste and the Dalit community is, is how effective has that now been? H- has it brought the amount of changes, the amount of um, opportunities in India that people hoped? Or has it also just led to greater levels of corruption taking place? You know, now there's such a huge level of reservation that many people are still paying, now paying huge bribes to get different seats in different colleges here in India. And also, is caste static? Because once you give people opportunities and people begin to rise up from those opportunities, do you have to move it on to other groups? I think there's also a debate now about whether it should be based on caste or whether it should be based on economics instead. Does it, does it have to be based on caste when we don't have any accurate figures of how many people there are from different castes here in India? Would it be not better to have, as we have in many other parts of the world, if we're going to offer you know, positive discrimination, which is, I think is needed here in India, should it not be, be based on an economic basis rather than on where you fit into this uh, rather nebulous concept? Okay, well, I'm going to pick up that theme of, of whether or not reservation helps or actually entrenches the inequality. But I just want to move on now to tell our audience about the current protests that are taking place in India. This is the reason really that we decided to take on the issue. Because in July, video footage emerged of four Dalits um, being beaten. They were taking a dead cow to be skinned when they were attacked. Now, cows are considered sacred by Hindus. Killing them is banned in the state of Gujarat. Uh, But the villagers said that the animal had actually died of natural causes. Now, whatever the reason this this beating took place, it prompted widespread protests in towns and cities across Gujarat, which is, of course, the home state of India's prime minister. Police fired tear gas shells. Uh, There were huge crowds who blocked roads and torched state buses. And currently, a group of Dalit activists are marching 400 kilometers from the state capital, Ahmedabad, uh, to the town of Una, where those beatings took place. And on August the 14th, the marchers will hoist a flag, uh, which they say uh, seeks to uh, free them from atrocities and caste-based discrimination. Let's just hear from the 35-year-old lawyer and social activist Jignesh Mivani, uh, who's leading the march. We voiced over his interview just so you can hear him more clearly. During this, march, we'll be meeting many... During this march, we are visiting many villages, meeting the Dalit families, and we are getting to hear that many of them are subject to caste brutalities, caste discrimination. Untouchability was abolished in the early 50s, and even after six, seven decades, there isn't any change. There's a recent study that was conducted in 2009 by one NGO. There are 98 types of untouchability still prevailing in the 1,589 villages of Gujarat. When you say 98 types of untouchability, what do you mean? For a lot of people around the world, they won't understand what that means in practice. Can you spell out for me what, what kinds of things? It means if I'm a Dalit, I can't touch your body. I cannot go to the temple. I can't fetch water from common public wells. These are some of the forms of untouchability. And what happens if if somebody does touch an upper caste person or drink from the same uh, cup or sit in the kitchen? He will be subject to some sort of discrimination. He could be socially boycotted. He will be asked to leave the village. So what is your message to Dalits? You want them to be unified. You're also asking them 
to stop doing caste-based jobs, these jobs that are demeaning. But, but isn't that usually their only source of livelihood? Uh, well, it is a source of livelihood. But well, it is a source of livelihood. But our demand is that for all those who are ready and willing to quit their caste-based occupations, those Dalits and all the Dalit families in the state of Gujarat, we are asking for five acres of land for each family. In other words, Dalits have traditionally not been able to own land, so you're asking for the government to redress uh, yeah. that, that imbalance. Yeah, so, yes, in India, who will become landowners? Yes, in India, who will become landowners and who will remain landless is designed by the caste system. Now, what do you make of the government's response so far? Because uh, the Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi has spoken up. He's called for a halt to attacks on low-caste Indians. Um, is that enough? That is not enough at all. Because if that is not enough at all. Because if we go by the statistics, during 2002 to 2014, when Modi was the chief minister of Gujarat, during that period, more than 14,000 cases of atrocities were registered as per the state crime statistics. He has never visited a victim's family. The statement that he recently made, shoot me, not Dalits, is nothing but typical Modi brand rhetoric. It is of no meaning to us. What do you hope will be achieved as a result of this march? You reach Una in a few days. At the end of that, in the, in the coming months, what do you hope to see from Dalits themselves? This movement is spreading fast. I'm hopeful this movement spread is spreading out. fast. I'm hopeful that it will spread outside Gujarat and have a great impact. My ambition is that all Dalits will unite and get out of these occupations and instead go for alternative employment, be it land or other means. And do you think that will change India? I think it is too early to say so. I think it's too early to say, but it's a step towards the annihilation of caste. And that was Jignesh Mirvani. He's uh, leading that 4,000-kilometre march. He was speaking to us from somewhere on the road um, in Gujarat. Um, Bina Palikal, you are working with a national campaign on Dalit human rights. What, what do you make of this march? What does it signify? I think what we want is justice. We are not going to stay silent anymore. This movement is a symbol of the injustice that we are facing. So I think we're, we're looking for a life of dignity, but also access to justice. And the impunity that exists in this country today, we need to break that. So we're still waiting for justice. And I think this movement is a symbol of that, that we, are, we will not keep silent anymore. So the more there is violence, it's when the Dalit community is actually asserting our rights. Sometimes they, they kill us because we ask for our wages. Sometimes they kill us because we're doing a little bit more better than them. There have been atrocities because the dog from a community went to the dominant caste uh, neighborhood and they actually killed. So any reason to actually break our dignity is what is being attempted at. And I think we will not be silent anymore. Prakasha, what do you think, not just this particular march that's been getting a lot of coverage in India, but there have been over the last few months, various agitations in India, they are related to caste, whether they are lower caste or actually um, slightly middle or upper caste. You know, there's been a lot of demands for 
special privileges or, or the same kinds of reservations that other people are getting. What does that say to you? Well, yeah, I mean, uh, just going back to the uh, immediate post-independence uh, context of India, I think one of the key mistakes that was made was to institute a system of reservations because what you have today is a system of allocating government uh, job places and educational places on the basis of uh, less merit. And what you're seeing as a result of that, I think, is a continuous decline in standards. There was a study out about uh, schools in Delhi where uh, certain age uh, children were not even performing to the level of three or four standards below them, right? And so you see a continuous decline in the quality of uh, public services and educational services and also education itself. See, so you have a kind of almost an unjust system of promotions and admissions which which has been put into place. And actually, I know of no Western country which would accept the uh, application of such a system for their own countries, you know, to do with the disadvantaged minorities and so on. Uh, you know, it's, it beggars belief that India has allowed itself to go down that route to the extent that now you have a series of dysfunctions. The, the second point to, be, to make is, of course, that this is now also linked to uh, electoral uh, priorities, right? So if you have a certain amount of muscle, if you can muster together a, a particular number of people from your own caste background, you can basically try to call the shots in any particular state in India. So, you know, it's, it's not based on um, uh, need, but it's based on muscle. Well, Chandraban Prasad, why don't you address that? Because I think that is a very fair criticism uh, of the challenge that India faces uh, going forward, whatever whatever the efforts to level the playing field might have been up until this point. There are two instruments that are going to make India caste neutral. One is constitution, the other is capitalism. And as the urban centers grow, India becomes an urban civilization, caste will lose its meaning, and then only real competition will become. Reservation promotes competition, because otherwise these guys, caste Hindus, would not allow any Dalit even to enter the school. The next thing we'll see is the imposition of reservations on the private sector, and foreign investors will just run away from India, trust me. Yeah, and there goes your capitalism. <laughs> You know, it's not going to work. You know, it doesn't work in any it country. It works in America. No, it doesn't Affirmative work. Affirmative in... action, if it can Affirmative work in action. America and America become a great nation, no. why not India? No, no. There is no comparison between the American system of affirmative action, which anyway is on the decline, and the system of reservations in India. They, they are worlds apart. The Americans would never accept a system as applies in India, and nor would any other Western country, right? I mean, to uh, be fair, though, America started at a completely different place to where India started as an independent country. I mean, you would accept that. Yeah, I mean, I was just responding to the point about the affirmative system. I mean, we can compare America and India if you like, if you like yeah. and the system of racial injustice in America. Can I pick up on, on the point, really, that I think all of you are making and, and is maybe the one point that everybody can agree on, which is uh, kind of looking at a post-caste society. Um, let's look at what that might uh, be like. I know that you know people have escaped caste in, in many different ways. Uh, Chandraban Prasad, you're talking about urbanization. Bina Palikal, for your family, it was religion. And Rahul, you've been speaking to a rather interesting man. I mean, this guy is a blockbuster, best-selling Indian author. And he's actually dropped his surname entirely on his books. I was looking at the cover. It just has his first name because he wants to promote a caste-free society. Tell us about him. Yeah, Amish Tripathi is India's best-selling uh, author at the moment. He's got this sort of a fictional uh, genre that really has taken the country by storm over the uh, the last five years, I would say, really. And uh, 
he 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 now is no called no longer Amish Tripathi on his books. He's uh, called Amish, and I've been speaking to him to ask him why he did this. Uh, my surname, uh, for those of us who are Indians, uh, you know, my surname is a caste surname. Uh, I'm uh, I'm not embarrassed of my surname. I have to use it in my legal documents. But my books have a very clear uh, uh, message that we should be judged on our karma, not our birth. Uh, the way the caste system exists today is appalling and disgusting. Uh, we have made a lot of movement in the last 40, 50 years to attack that system. Uh, but we need to go further. And uh, this is my uh, small uh, statement uh, on my book. I don't believe in the caste system. Don't judge me by my caste. Judge me uh, for my own karma. Uh, don't judge me as a Tripathi. Judge me as Amish. For people who are not aware of what caste your surname would be, which caste would you come from? I don't believe in the caste system. I'm not from any caste. But if you ask my ancestors, they uh, well, they would be Brahmins. How influential is caste still in the, in the lives? I mean, it depends from person to person, I'm sure. But whilst it may not, for maybe for a new younger generation, caste may not be that mm. much part of their life. For millions of others, it still is, isn't it? I think the good part of uh, modern India is in urban India, it's, the caste barriers seem to be breaking down. But you see in our... In Hindu, some ways. Yeah. But if you pick in up a newspaper, Hindu, you'll see, yeah. still see in caste Hindu, in matrimonial. In yeah. Uh, what has happened is the inter-caste marriages, the inter-religious marriages that are happening is kind of really breaking this down. I'm married to a half-Parsi, half-Gujarati, for example. My, my, my son can't claim any caste, any religion, right? And this is happening more and more, you know, in our generation. Uh, this is not something that will get destroyed immediately. It's been around for thousands of years. But I'm extremely proud of the movement we have made in the last 50 years. And with minimal violence. Look at the amount of violence that accompanied the ending of uh, slavery in, uh, in, in the US in the mid-19th century. There's been minimal violence. We've had elected uh, chief ministers of the most powerful states, all from lower castes, who made it on their own. Right? We've had presidents who are, uh, who are from lower castes. But we need to go further. If you see the census data, for example, the dramatic improvements that have taken place in the economic well-being of uh, the lower castes is something that I'm very proud of. But we need to go further. Uh, and I think all of us need to make statements on it. My, my dropping my surname on my books is my own uh, small statement. So that's the best-selling author, formerly known as Amish Tripathi. Of course, everybody knows his surname, but now only known as Amish. Uh, Rahul, what do you think he thinks the impact of this will be? I think it's a very personal thing. You know, he doesn't want to be judged by his caste. I think there's a number of people in Bihar, one of the the states in India where caste is one of the biggest issues who have have dropped their name. So I but, think but he'd it, be judged positively, per- ironically, wouldn't he? Because he, he's mentioned he's a Brahmin. That's the topmost yeah. caste, right? Yeah. But he doesn't. He just doesn't want people to judge him in any way, whether it's positively or negatively, because of something he may have been born into. He wants to be judged by the quality of his writing, by by not, you know, some people from a high caste may say, oh, he's a high caste, you know, well done. And so I think that's the reason behind it. But, I, you know, I think one of the interesting things that he raises there when he talks about the success of, you know, politicians who come from lower caste backgrounds, and I, and I know we're having a lot of discussion about where India is at at this, and I, I, I wonder what your, your, your um, panellists in Delhi think coming from the lower caste about... You know, we have had governments now, whether it's Mayawati and UP, which have been there representing the lower caste. Have they done a good enough job in promoting them? Have they helped enough having their own political... They have political power at the moment. Why is that not being translated into greater economic power? Bina? I think in UP, when Mayawati was the CM, just to give you an example, many people were harping about how many cases of violence 
happened even while she was chief minister but the point of the matter is that when she was chief minister people were more had more confidence in going to the police stations and getting the uh, cases registered whereas in the other regime uh, they couldn't even register the first information report that's how difficult it is for us to get um, get um, recognition. Let me just interject just to say that that, that you guys all recognize what you're talking about. We're talking about the state of Uttar Pradesh, UP, that's the the initials. And uh, Mayawati is a low caste leader um, who really came to power by galvanizing a kind of low caste identity. She's uh, been controversial, but also quite successful in some ways. Um, But I just want to come back to this idea of a post cast India. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, do you think, Bina Anton the Prasad, I mean, do you think that that can be achieved through personal choice, like Amish Tripathi, you know, the author, getting rid of his surname, or legal mandate? What do you think is the way forward, Bina? I think it's a combination of both, Anu. One is definitely personal conscience. I think he's a very conscientious person, and then he has taken that own, own personal choice, and I think it's really nice to know that there are people who are doing that. But I think it's much larger than just changing your surname. Even if I change my surname, people will know where I come from, from my food habits, you know, from my cultural upbringing, from uh, which part of the country I come from. So that won't really change much. But these small efforts need to be appreciated. But I also want to place on record, Anu, that in India, we have some of the best legal mechanisms that any country can offer, whether it be affirmative action in the public sector and education. Uh, we have the scheduled caste subplan and tribal subplan, which is targeted budgets. Again, for the, Dalits and for, yes, for those yes, outside for, the caste system. Yes, for the development of Dalits and Adivasis, which are good policies. We have the uh, manual scavenging, um, the act that uh, for elimination of manual scavenging. In other words, cleaning of sewers by hand. Yes, yes. So we have excellent legal mechanisms. But where what is we're lacking is the political will to ensure the effective implementation of these policies. For example, the scheduled caste subplan and tribal subplan proportionate to the population of the of the community, which is about 16.6% for Dalits and about 8.6% for the tribal community, has to be allocated and utilized for the development of the Dalits and Adivasis. But what is happening is much of this money is being diverted to build stadiums, to build roads that has absolutely no impact on the community. So I think where we need to do is we need to, yes, one, make those personal choices and give up our privileges that we were born with. And second is to ensure that these legal mechanisms that were very well crafted and drafted in this country be implemented well. So the government has to take a little bit more uh, efforts in ensuring that the implementation of these legal mechanisms uh, are done well. Chandraban Prasad, does that include for you, whether it's in 50 years' time or or even 100 years' time, also getting rid of the, the privilege of quotas, reservation, affirmative action? See, first I would like to salute uh, people like Amis. You know, people like Amis... And there are millions of caste Hindus who are betraying their caste, who are betraying their religion. And in that way, they are trying to make India caste neutral. Let me tell you, Dalits are trying to escape and destroy the system of discrimination in different ways. One is language. You know, English is a language of equality. 
And Ambedkar said, Dalis, he asked Dalis to learn English. English is the milk of lioness, he said. So, so long as India's indigenous languages remain uh, in practice, the dream of equality will be far away. And we are sure, we are sure India will become caste neutral within this century because a large number of Indians are, uh, Dalits are entering into uh, occupations that are caste neutral thanks to globalization, thanks to capitalism. So Dalits are entering into caste-neutral occupations that uh, globalization has brought into India. Multinational companies that are entering into India, they are less caste-conscious. They have no problem in, in working with Dalits. Only Indian companies that are truly Indian, truly Hindu, have problems in working with Dalits. So let the world globalize, let India become an urban civilization, and let more and more foreign companies enter this land so that competition increases okay. and the, the, the upper caste, which have been non-productive for thousands of years, will also uh, start working and join competition uh, and join the race of uh, progress okay. and make India a great nation. Okay, we're running out of time. Prakash, I want to come to you. Do you see India, Hinduism, without caste at some point in the future? Uh, why do you want to see it without caste? I mean, the, you're propagating a sense of shame, right, uh, about caste. Why should Indians be afraid of their caste? It's a great shame. Uh, perhaps one way, of course, if you really wanted to eliminate caste is simply to make the whole of India Christian, which is, of course, what the Christian churches want to do in India, right? right? You, you didn't even tell happening. me what your own caste is. Yeah, I mean, why but you're I? saying you, you, you're mm. not ashamed why of should it. I? Why should I say what, what my caste is? You don't have to. How is it relevant to your discussion? Because we're India? talking about caste. Yeah, but how is it relevant to the future of India? What, what does it matter? Okay, um, Rahul, I'm going to come to you last. India in 50 years without caste, do you think? <laughs> I don't think so. Look, my kids, you know, don't talk about caste um, here in India, but I think there are millions of people who do talk about caste, and uh, 50 years' time, only we may still be having the same discussion. You may be hosting it, still trying to get some answers. <laughs> I hope not. But uh, I want to thank all of you uh, for joining us today at the BBC's Rahul Tandon in Calcutta, uh, Chandra Band Prasad, a Dalit journalist and political commentator, as well as Bina Palikal, a Dalit rights activist, and here with me in London, Dr. Prakash Shah, a researcher in law at Queen Mary University. That's it from NewsHour Extra uh, for this edition. Thank you very much for listening.